This is David Mashi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, a new online journal of politics, economics, and culture published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. In the sixth installment of our series on liberalism, Ben Klutzi, Director of Academic Outreach at Mercatus, speaks with Danielle Allen about trust, civic friendship, and political and social equality as an essential foundation for liberty. Klutzi and Allen also discuss the importance of overcoming our fear of talking and really listening to strangers. Dr. Allen is the James Bryan Conant University Professor at Harvard University and Director of Harvard's Edmund J. Safra Center for Ethics. She specializes in democratic theory, political sociology, and the history of political thought, and is widely known for her work on justice and citizenship in both ancient Athens and modern America. The audio, as well as the transcript for this conversation between Klutzi and Allen, has been slightly edited for clarity. We hope you enjoy this fascinating discussion. We're talking about liberalism, a set of ideas that blossomed in the Enlightenment period, which informed the founding or reconstruction of many states, including the United States. It is foundational to our liberal democracy. It includes values like freedom of speech and expression, individual liberty, equality, toleration, mutual forbearance, and the like. But we see the emergence of populism and polarization, which sometimes seem to challenge this liberal tradition. We started this series to investigate what this liberal tradition is, its current challenges, and how we can strengthen it. And today, we're incredibly fortunate to have Professor Danielle Allen. She's a James Bryant Conant University professor and director of the Edmund J. Safford Center for Ethics at Harvard University. Professor Allen is a classicist and political theorist. She has published broadly in democratic theory, political sociology, and the history of political thought. She's widely known for her work on justice and citizenship in both ancient Athens and modern America. We'll include a list of her books on the podcast page so that our audience can take a look. But today we'll cover themes from her books, The World of Prometheus, The Politics of Punishing in Democratic Athens from 2002, Talking to Strangers, Anxieties of Citizenship Since Brown versus Board of Education, 2004, and Our Declaration, a reading of the Declaration of Independence in Defense of Equality from 2014. So we'll just delve right in. And the first set of questions, we're trying to focus on you know, liberalism, um, trust, and political friendship. Now, in your book, Talking to Strangers, uh, you highlight distrust as among our core political problems, including racial distrust. However, liberalism emerged during the Enlightenment period to solve the problem of distrust in political life. Are we doing any better than we were 16 years ago when you wrote the book? So, I mean, let me start with some thoughts perhaps about the concept of liberalism and say, as I'm sure you've already covered on your series, there's such an incredible variety of liberalisms, right? So then the question is always, well, what do they share exactly? And the answer to that question, I have always taken to be grounded in the word itself, which comes from the Latin word for freedom, for liberty. And therefore what's shared is really a concept about the value of liberty and rights in human life and the value of free self-government. I take liberalism to be a fundamentally political concept in the first instance. Of course, one can also talk about economic liberalism, but I think it's important to maintain that distinction. So then the question is, okay, well, what do freedom, free self-government and rights have to do with trust? What's the role of trust in relationship to these things? After all, 
isn't it the case that the point of liberal institutions is to design and order power in such a way that rights are secured precisely so that we are all protected from one, one another? In some sense, isn't it the case that institutions are supposed to replace any kind of social bond of trust? And there, what I argue is, in fact, the healthy functioning of the institutions of liberalism depend on both a willingness of participants to prove their trustworthiness to others and the capacity of a society to build and sustain trust among its members. So are we in the U.S. doing better in 2020 than we were in 2004 when I published Talking to Strangers? I think the answer is no. I would love to figure out a way to say yes, but I don't really see how I can. All the metrics that we use for tracking trust are tending and trending in negative directions. For me, the most salient metrics are the ones that are about how much Americans trust one another. So we're all very familiar with the fact that distrust of the federal government has just been on an increase in a sort of steady way over the last few decades. It's also a sad fact that distrust of one another, America's distrust of one another, has been on the increase. So for me, that's the part that really, really matters and is concerning. The one counterpoint to all of that actually is that Americans' trust of local government is still remarkably high. So about 70% of Americans will say that they trust their local government. Yeah, and I had a conversation with Professor Robert Talese of uh, Vanderbilt University a few weeks ago, and his book, Overdoing Democracy, which talks about polarization. And in that, he talks about how attitudes towards inter-party marriages have gotten worse, far worse than interfaith, interracial. And that seems to me to be very alarming. It's a little bit different from trust in particular, uh, but just in the context of you know, how we engage one another more broadly, I think it's, it's very, very alarming. It is alarming. No, I agree. And so I think this is where we come back to the issue of the paradox that building institutions of free self-government that protect rights also require trust, sort of comes out best. At the end of the day, those institutions of liberalism can function only if people are committed to their ongoing maintenance. And the whole point of kind of constitutional democracy is that you make decisions where there are winners and losers. You almost never have something that's got unanimous support. Consequently, people have to be willing to stay in the game. They have to be committed to just the process itself of actually making decisions together, even though you win some and you lose some. So um, if you lose that kind of mutual commitment, you can't really sustain constitutional democracy. So that's why the trust element is so important. So in that book, Talking to Strangers, you talk about how we idealize the one nation concept. And that sort of undermines the ability to generate trust. And you talk about sort of wholeness as a better way to orient ourselves towards having more trust in a diverse society. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? Explain what sort of wholeness is versus the one nation concept. Sure. So lots of people rely on the phrase a pluribus unum to think about what the project is of pursuing constitutional democracy or liberalism in context of pluralism and diversity. And my concern with the notion that the goal is to achieve oneness is that, again, um, you can never homogenize opinion, nor would you ever want to. So indeed, what you'll always have is a sort of society of heterogeneity. Freedom is a generator of heterogeneity, and that's a, a good and beautiful thing. So then the question is, 
what's the kind of link we can have with one another given heterogeneity that nonetheless supports good governance. And that link I call wholeness, which is that we're committed to doing things together, operating together. We're committed to tending to the quality of our relationships, to redressing harms when people raise grievances, to engaging in debate um, based on sound principles of argumentation and, and reason and lack of ad hominem and things like that. So the ideal of wholeness conveys that we're committed to a set of practices that sustain our commitments to each other and our commitments to the institutions of constitutional democracy. I have one way I would now modify the argument I made of talking to strangers. So I do think that the a pluribus unum phrase or the concept of oneness is valuable in one way specifically, and that is in naming the fact that there's a single set of institutions from which decisions issue, and we all share that same one set of institutions, legitimate and authoritative institutions. And then the concept of wholeness really captures who we are as a society and what our relationships to each other as a society should be, even as we are sharing a single set of decision-making institutions. And so you also talk about how, you know, ordinary habits are the stuff of citizenship. And I I really love that phrase because then it it goes beyond voting and paying taxes and volunteering and, and, and things like that. And friendship is one of the habits that we ought to cultivate in order to generate trust and improve our democracy. So how do we do this? How do we develop political friendships, especially at a time when we're so polarized? Well, I think to some extent you have to fake it till you make it. That's one of the ways I think about it, that we've all been friends. We know what friendship requires. So this is a really important point from Aristotle that you can separate, in a sense, the practices of friendship from the emotional element of friendship. And so what that means is that you can take those habits, the habits of mutual exchange, reciprocity, turn-taking, and so forth, and you can actually use those with anybody And they are facilitative of productive relationships. So from my point of view, each of us, wherever we're situated, has a kind of obligation to find people with whom we disagree and pull them into our work and into forms of collaboration and to use those principles, the practices of friendship with them in the expectation that that will help our work. And then one discovers a second benefit that over time, the feelings of friendship can emerge as well and reduce the impact of experiences of polarization. Yeah. And one thing you talk about as well is that generally we, we tend to you know, tell kids, you don't talk to strangers, right? Which is an important part of our culture. But you're saying that we should get out of our comfort zones and which is sort of the title of your book. We ought to talk to strangers. We ought to talk to one another. Talk to strangers and listen to strangers After I published Talking to Strangers, I got a lot of uh, pushback from people who said, actually, the more important thing is listening to strangers. And I have to say, I think there's truth to that. And there is um, a version of the book that would really focus on that listening concept, hearing other people's stories, partly because that's part of the work of building relationships and developing empathy and so forth, but also actually because each human being is the sort of incredible processor of the world around us. And so every story a person tells provides knowledge, gives us perspective on how our world is put together. And I think what we're all experiencing in our, our very polarized world is a sort of limited sort of span of perception. We can only really see things from where we sit and where our friends sit. And there's so much of the world, therefore, that's not within our grasp. We can't understand the perspective. And so Hence, the listening to strangers becomes so important so that you can see things as they see them in the first instance before you even begin to engage. 
In my conversation with Robert Talese, he is saying that we are overdoing democracy or overdoing politics. Uh, it's saturated every sphere, every area of our lives. And we ought to do more in society that have nothing to do with politics. And he says that if you have a hard time thinking about, you know, anything that you do that has nothing to do with politics, and that is the problem. So I, I don't know how we, we do that. I guess that we can talk to strangers in ways that it's just about learning about who they are, you know, what they do and, and so on without bringing up politics at all. I think that that would be helpful. Well, no, absolutely. I mean, I do, I think of talking to strangers in the first instance as a sort of practice of mutual gift giving and where in some sense, one's job is to share something first, something about oneself that strangers wouldn't know. And that opens up knowledge, understanding about one's own perspective on the world. And then one hopes that the stranger reciprocates with a story of their own. And I think those, those stories that really share where we've been, what we've seen, what we've analyzed as significant, typically actually aren't about politics because they're sort of a remove from politics. They're more about what matters in life, what are the challenges in life. And I think being able to reconnect along those dimensions is, is really valuable. Now, switching gears a little bit to your other book, Our Declaration, where you focus on the, the concept of equality. But first of all, it is very clear in reading that book that you are passionate about the Declaration of Independence. And I'd love for you to kind of take a minute to kind of reflect on this passion, where this passion comes from. Yeah, no, it's I am passionate about the Declaration of Independence. And it's really, you know, it's, it's kind of crazy. I never realized I've been on a journey with the Declaration for 20 years already, which I never would have um, predicted for myself as a young person. There's sort of scarcely a day that goes by that I don't actually think about it, which is sort of insane. And so where did that love come from? I mean, honestly, it was just this really extraordinary teaching experience as I read about in my book. I was teaching a night program, night school for low-income adults in Chicago. It was a humanities-based program. The principle was that too often people in poverty are sort of treated to vocational programs that, you know, are very instrumentalizing as opposed to developing of their whole human self and the latter programs, humanities-based ones being therefore more empowering of them. So it was a program where I taught sometimes in the history section, sometimes in philosophy, sometimes in the writing section. And we wanted to always use really extraordinary, powerful texts, but really ultimately also had to pick shorter texts. And so my, um, just kind of really rudimentary problem-solving approach led me to focus on the Declaration of Independence as a, a short, great text I could use across these categories. And I was not expecting my students to react as powerfully to the text as they did. So it was really my students who took me by surprise. And we would read the text. We always started by reading it out loud. And it was always incredibly moving because it would immediately lead to a conversation about our contemporary world and what people's aspirations are for it, what challenges they saw in it. The language of the declaration around sort of the grievances against the king is you know, very easy to start you know, thinking about grievances against the mayor, for instance. And so one went just so fast into these really profound conversations about individual life trajectories and the changes people were trying to make personally and social life trajectories and how we can drive change there. So it was really my students and the power of their reactions to the text led me to kind of take another look and turn around and start digging into the declaration. That's great. One of the ideas you discuss in the book, Our Declaration, is that as a society, we highlight freedom over equality, which, as you describe, has different facets. 
And you know that equality precedes freedom. Is there a tension between these two concepts or do we simply misunderstand that they are mutually reinforcing concepts? I think we mainly misunderstand that they're mutually reinforcing concepts. So there's another dimension to that. So in the 18th century, when the Declaration was written, the concept of equality that was at the forefront of the minds of the folks who wrote that was a political equality concept supported by a concept of social equality and equal access to political institutions and so forth. So there wasn't really a kind of conceptualization attached to economic questions at the time. So political equality and freedom are 100% mutually compatible with each other. And then, of course, in the 19th century, we go through this extraordinary transformation of the global economy with the Industrial Revolution. And then economic questions come to the fore in political life in a different kind of way as Marxism, communism emerge and start counterposing the emancipation of the proletariat to the bourgeois rights of property that have to be invaded in order to secure the emancipation of the proletariat. So we do, um, in the late 19th and early 20th century, start getting an argument that freedom and economic equality, perfect material equality, are in opposition to each other. And that is basically correct. That is a sort of status authoritarian, total equalization of property does undermine freedom. So for me, the important question is, how do you recover the original recognition that you can't have freedom without equality? Because if freedom is really about each and every one of us not being dominated by others and not being dominated by collective forces or external adversaries, then the only way that we can have that actually is if we are on equal footing, politically speaking, in relationship to each other. So freedom and equality go hand in glove with one another. They're both grounded in the equality of human dignity. And so then there's a question of where does economic life fit into that picture? For me, the way one addresses that is one has to ask the question of what forms of economic life, what ways of organizing our economy are empowering of people and supportive of political equality. And in general, I think if you ask that question, it does point in a direction of more egalitarian approaches to a market economy, for instance, but it doesn't point to a sort of top-down status, total equalization of property or anything of that kind. So I do think that egalitarian economic solutions are compatible um, with a commitment to freedom, including market freedom. But I think that's the work that we have to do is to really articulate how those pieces fit together. Do you think we're going through another reconstruction and rethinking of these concepts? I hear the term equity a lot. Has that always been the case or is just a, a new wave of rethinking about equality? Well, funnily enough, as it happens, I have a, an undergraduate last year who wrote a senior thesis on the concept of equity because as just as you said, he said, you know, I feel like I'm hearing it all the time now. Is, like, is this a brand new concept or where does it come from? And the term actually has quite interesting history, as it turns out. I mean, it's not actually a term with a deep genealogy in philosophy, per se. I mean, it's a legal term originally, right? Aristotle introduces equity as a concept that you use to correct the law when the strict application of the law somehow goes wrong and produces an injustice. So in other words, law is right 98% of the time, but in 2% of the cases, that rule doesn't work for that case. And you want a judge to be able to equitably make an adjustment. That kind of concept of equity moved throughout time. Um, and then in the 60s and 70s, actually, in the space of administrative theory, theory of administrative policy and so forth, equity came in as a concept that had that same kind of rectificatory element. When you have policies that on paper look fair or procedurally fair, but nonetheless sort of keep 
repeating these results that look substantively unjust, then you bring an equity lens in to figure out how to rectify. That really is what the core of the concept is. I think that what the conversation about equity gives us now, actually, though, is a lens for seeing the places where the arrangements as we've had them for the last sort of 30 years, economic arrangements of the last 30 years, have failed us, haven't delivered what they should by way of foundational flourishing for all and an opportunity structure that's really well distributed throughout the population. So I think it's a useful diagnostic tool, but then I think there's a bigger conversation to be had about how market economies can function in ways that are more supportive of egalitarian opportunity. Incarceration is one major way that a person's freedom can be substantially limited. In the world of Prometheus, you show that in America, we use incarceration for 70% of criminal justice sanctions, which is quite astounding. Is this primarily due to the war on drugs? I mean, is criminal justice reform moving in the right direction in your perspective? So justice reform is moving in the right direction, absolutely. And ending the war on drugs is part of the right direction. At the end of the day, drug penalties and getting rid of them probably only remove somewhere between 14 and 18 percent of incarceration from the system. So they're really only part of the story. The story also involves things like mandatory minimums and extremely long sentences. The U.S. penal system has much longer sentences than our peers in Europe. So for example, in Germany, where 6% of sanctions are incarceration, I believe the average length of sentence is also in the matter of months, and a long sentence counts as three years. You know, so whereas for us, 10, 20, 40 years is quite routine to hear and read about. So I think you know, any, any healthy society needs a sound system of justice for securing public safety, responding to violence, and also fairly supporting offenders in reconnecting to society. And I think our current system falls down really badly on the last dimension. There's a lot more that can be said about that, but I think those systems of justice, again, I think Germany and Netherlands have good examples um, that focus on sanctioning systems that reconnect offenders to healthy social relationships are much better for public safety and the individual well-being of both victims and offenders than the highly retributive system and that we currently operate. Switching gears a little bit to education, has the emphasis on STEM, and I think this relates to sort of how we engage each other in society, the emphasis on STEM over the years led to a decline in the focus on the humanities, which plays a role in inspiring students towards civic engagement. Does that have any implications for liberalism generally? Absolutely. Um, I think there's a lot to be said there. There there are two different issues, both of which, though, I think ultimately connect to the theme of and challenge of technocracy. So take technocracy as the idea that decisions are best made by experts. One of the things that technocracy has delivered for us in the last few years is the argument that the problem of increasing income and wealth inequality are best addressed by disseminating STEM skills as widely as possible. Yet STEM skills, at least the way we teach STEM in this country at this point in time, are correlated to lower levels of civic participation and civic engagement. So if, on the other hand, you have a sort of different view about human flourishing, a view that decisions should be made collectively through processes of constitutional democracy, technocrats should be advisors to 
self-governing people represented by their elected officials, then what you see is you've got a situation where the technocrats are actually kind of making recommendations that are mutually reinforcing of their own power and undermining of democracy. And then if your view is also that the kind of democratic empowerment that involves participating again in the decision-making constitutional democracy tends to deliver egalitarian economic outcomes, then you're actually losing one of the most important tools you have um, for securing an approach to economic policy that might, for example, give us a new competition policy to really tackle questions of monopoly and things like that. We're, we're leaving the tool of change along those dimensions on the table by virtue of not empowering people's participation. So I do think from an education point of view, it's really critical that we rebuild the supports for civic participation, civic resilience. It reminds me of your forward to Anna Arendt's book, The Human Condition. And I think there you, you note that there has been such an overemphasis on science to solve a lot of problems. And it seems as though you're, you're saying that we should have a, a way to think, sort of ask meta questions about our society where science may not or technocracy may not necessarily play a role. Well, I think science and technocracy answer how questions, but not what questions. And answering the what questions, what are we trying to do here as a society? What do we want to be as a people? That's hard work. And it is work carried out in collaboration between people who run for office, people who hold office, and um, ordinary citizens, the general population. That work, I believe, we have to take seriously. And you know, we, the people, through our education, should equip ourselves for participating in that work. And then as we work together to set our objectives, then we can ask the technocrats how best to accomplish those objectives. So again, for example, if we think that one of our objectives is that there should be really, you know, well-spread egalitarian distribution of opportunity in the country, and if we can see that we're not actually achieving that, then we should ask the technocrats, okay, how can we do a better job of that? You know, would a better competition policy support that, for example? You know, what are the different ways in which we might go about getting that. But, but we, the people, have to set the objectives. And in order to do that, we have to have um, a level of comfort engaging with questions about our values, actually, and even despite differences and disagreements. We have to be able to talk about, you know, how do you rate liberty? How do you rate equality? How do you put these things together? What are the different alternatives? And what do we know about history? What do we know about society that helps us see what's good and valuable for human beings? That kind of education you get from the humanities, from the social sciences, you know, you get some of it from the natural sciences. I'm not saying it's impossible, but at the end of the day, you know, when you, especially when you get into spaces like engineering or economics, policymaking and so forth, very often what people are providing answers to are how questions. And if they haven't revisited the original kind of what questions, then you just get a kind of rinse and repeat mechanism. That's, I always think of it slightly as driving blind. Like at a certain point, you don't even know where you're going anymore. And it's like, no wonder you run into a ditch as we did with 2008. Does your problem with technocracy relate to F.A. Hayek's ideas on scientism, for instance, that the real solution is distributed knowledge? Hayek talks a lot about the knowledge problem. Yeah, no, I do. I mean, that is a place where I agree with Hayek. I do think distributed knowledge is key, absolutely. And that, I mean, the danger of technocracy is a too limited view of what's happening in the world, period, what the full range of human experience is. So, yeah, so that is a place where I do agree with Hayek. Now, a lot of folks in our audience are college professors wondering whether you have any advice for them, especially for stimulating an atmosphere of open inquiry on their campuses and in their classrooms. 
So at the Edmund J. Sanford Center for Ethics at Harvard, which I run, uh, we have started a set of programs under the heading of Civil Disagreement Program. They come in a couple of different flavors. We try to have big events where we bring people with very differing viewpoints on a hard issue. So we did one on immigration last, uh, well, before the pandemic set in. And then we also have a program at this point that we've, it's a collaborative program with several other campuses, different kinds of campuses, so community colleges as well as private universities, where students come together across ideological lines for the sake both of talking about specific issue areas, but also actually learning negotiation skills and learning facilitation skills. So our view is that we're at a point um, in our collective life where we actually have to be intentional and proactive about rebuilding skills of conversation across uh, ideological lines. So that's what we're doing. Do you find that because of social media and some of these platforms, it's become a lot more difficult to, to learn how to have these conversations? But do you think social media hasn't helped? I mean, I think of social media as something like, you know, middle school. <laughs> We're all trapped in middle school at the moment. And so it really is a question of how can we either build alternative media platforms or reset the norms on these media platforms to kind of get us all out of middle school into some sort of more adult space for interaction. I'm always surprised at how frequently if somebody kind of snarks back at me on Twitter as a matter of principle, I always try to respond politely and to engage the person on whatever point of substance they put out there. And nine times out of 10, the person actually comes back in a perfectly nice and friendly way. It takes me completely by surprise because it's so different from how they sounded in the first go. So, you know, there's just so much bravado. And underneath it, I think a lot of people are hungering for real intellectual connection. And we just don't know how to do it anymore. I had a conversation with a professor who said that, you know, people think that Students can't have these conversations anymore. Everyone is sort of dug in. But actually, on their campus, they see a hunger for different ideas and different viewpoints and a way to have these types of conversations. So it's really encouraging to hear you say that. Do you think that there is a particular skill that one needs to develop to be able to have these types of conversations? Is it listening? I do think it's listening. So actually... Um we have a we run a civic education initiative K through 12 and we have a grade 8 curriculum here in Massachusetts and so we had to provide a lot of support last week to educators looking to support their 8th graders thinking about the election and so among other things they wanted advice for how to help classrooms engage despite the fact that you'd have quite different viewpoints represented in the class and so yes I mean the first rule is listen so when a person speaks repeat back to them what they said and see if you actually heard it right let them kind of correct what you said until they can affirm, yes, that's pretty much what I meant. And then you can share your view and ask them to repeat back to you. And we've got to do that work first and just plain being able to understand what each of us is saying from the speaker's perspective. That's sort of step number one. Step number two, and this, this was not so much for eighth grade classrooms, but I think that the really hard part of these conversations is issues that people experience as connected to an existential threat. And here, I think there's work that's needed on the side of both the party who has a view that's perceived by others as an existential, existential threat and on the part of those who perceive that view as an existential threat. So affirmative action is an issue, an example of this, abortion, um, kind of immigration. These can all be such issues. And I do believe it's incumbent on the speaker who holds a view that others perceive as an existential threat 
to recognize that experience of threat and to be responsible in relationship to it um, and do what they can to establish a context and space of safety for the person who is going to have this experience, this perceived threat. And then for the person who is experiencing an existential threat through the expression of a policy viewpoint, I think there they need to be able to say both, you know, say out loud, like, here's what's existentially threatening about that. And then let me separate that and the emotion that goes with that from you know, the substantive point that I also want to engage on. So I think it's very hard to be able to sort of separate those two things, the emotional reaction from, so to speak, the analytical reaction. But I think if we could make space in our conversations for acknowledging the emotional reaction and then again like, asking for it and saying, okay, we hear that. And now let's look at the analytic reaction and see what that looks like. If we could try to make both of those moves, I think we open up space for conversation. That's really helpful. I find that there is a way in which we talk about politics that sounds like a zero-sum game that, you know, one group A wins, a group B completely loses. And if group B wins, group A is completely at a loss. Is there a way that we can address that? Well, I think we have a lot of work to do to address that. I don't think that experience characterizes our local politics or our state-level politics. So I think it's really a characterization of our federal politics. And there, you know, I do think I mean, this is one of the reasons I've become a real advocate of reforms to our mechanisms of voting, why I'm in favor of ranked choice voting, precisely because it sort of changes the incentives for candidates who are campaigning. They have to build broad coalitions and always want to be building broad coalitions on our current sort of plurality approach. You can win by driving wedges and by really just committing to one portion of the electorate and carrying through for that portion of the electorate. So I think we have a set of incentive problems that are plaguing our national politics and resulting in that kind of sort of bright line winners and losers picture. Final question, a question that I like to ask our guests, and it's about optimism. Are you optimistic about the future of liberalism in terms of you know how we engage with one another in civil discourse to foster trust, equality, viewpoint, diversity, and so on. I'm guessing that you're an optimist, but I'm not sure. Well, that's pretty funny. Is it true that you really ask everybody this question? Is that for real? I do. (laughs) That's great. I'm only asking because everybody always asks me this question. And so I definitely have a reputation as an optimist. You know, so people say, are you really an optimist? And in truth, my answer is slightly different. It is the following, that... I believe that the best path to human flourishing comes from, is laid on a foundation of of liberalism, of constitutional democracy, of being able to be part of a free and equal self-governing people. And consequently, for me, failure is not an option. What I always say is I'm I'm not an optimist, I'm not an optionist. And that's how I think about myself. So it's, it's how will we succeed at achieving these things, not whether we will or not. All right. Well, thank you so much, Professor Allen. This has been very insightful. Thank you for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.